Hey, welcome to church. Uh, my name's Colby. Uh, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. Kind of an introduction of uh, just the last few weeks that we went through. I know that we dealt with uh, abortion and divorce, and so we didn't know where we could go from there. Uh, so we're going to talk about money today, uh, just because that's what happens next in the text. And um, it's weird because uh, this passage just absolutely wrecked me this week. Um, I grew up uh, from a broken family. My parents were divorced. And so as I grew up, I felt like because of that divorce and the decisions my parents made, uh, my dad um, ended up in prison and, and grew up largely fatherless, was being raised by my grandparents. My mom was a bartender and uh, you know, was in and out of my life in that way. It's that when I went to school, I felt like I had this pressure to try to prove the world that I was different than my parents. And so I pursued a lot of things uh, academically, where on the math and science team and physics team and all of this stuff, sports, football, basketball, track, powerlifting, golf, just completely consumed with trying to achieve things in order to find fulfillment. And then I went to college and was not following the Lord and was involved with all kinds of partying and scenes. I lived on the half athletic floor of the University of Oklahoma. So most of the guys I ran with were playing football on Saturdays for OU. And so that gave me access to all the parties I wanted to go to, all of the female relationships that I wanted to be in. And yet despite the relationships I had or the chemicals that were going through my veins and going through my brain, there was something in the back of my soul that just nagged me. Have you ever been there? And, and, and then it would just, it would morph. So like, say for instance, I would go somewhere and I would buy something. So first time I remember buying like an actual nice car. My first car, I've, I bought all of my cars growing up myself. Well, you just come wherever you want, homie. Um, and the first, uh, first car I bought, Red Dog 1991 Ford Ranger truck. It had a chrome skull for the gear shifter. Right? 14 million miles. It drank more oil than gas. You ever had one of those cars? But the first car that I actually bought in college and kind of had money that was decent, like it was not like Red Dog, it was actually like a nicer vehicle. The first one I bought, I was so stoked. And how long did that last? Like a week until the first payment came. That's right. Right? And, and there, was no, there was not enough alcohol I could consume there's not enough drugs. There's not enough sex you can have. There's not enough of the right circle of friends you can be in. There's not enough of the right things you can purchase. I discovered real quick that could get rid of that nagging thing in the back of my soul. And that's like a, that's like a terrible place to be. Because you can just gobble up possessions and stuff, and it never fits just right in the God-shaped hole that each of us have. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And so, I say that to say, today we've got a, we've got a dude coming to Jesus that is unfulfilled. And I just, I relate a thousand percent to that. And here's the other thing that, let's make this a little bit more scary. I come to the Lord after my college years, start pursuing Him, I get on fire for the Lord, start to grow in Him, 
start to get into church, get into community. I get discipleship, start to serve, start to go on missions, and start to walk with him for a period of time. And here is what is absolutely terrifying. I get to the place where church stuff doesn't fill me either. Like I can come to services like this, I can attend Bible studies, I can be at the right places and even know some of the right answers to the right questions. But slowly I started drinking again from the world and my heart begins to ache all over again. And I can come to church services and leave unchanged. If I was honest, sometimes even leave disappointed. Because coming to church and coming to Jesus are not the same thing. As valuable as this meeting is, as commanded as it is, as being in community and missions, all of those things have their place in the Christian life. But they are just no substitute for coming to the Creator Himself. And so, I want to talk about unfulfillment. Uh, Let's pray. Maybe ask God to be in our time and then let's map out how we're going to do this. If you'll assume a, a posture of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. God, praise is befitting of you because you are all glorious. You are completely sovereign over the whole universe. Everything owes credit to you. To lift our eyes from this material world and God help us to fix our gaze upon Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising its shame that you might rescue a bunch of ragamuffin folk like what we got up in here and so God thank you for the cross and what it teaches us God help us to see today The gospel, the gospel as a treasure hidden in the field that's worth giving up all of our lives and all of our possessions in order to have. God, help us to put our relationship to you above absolutely everything today. Rescue um, my brothers and sisters and my friends in here from idolatry. And so, God, order our hearts, weed out things that need weeded out, plant things that need planted, and bring fruit out of these people. God, I pray you do that through your word for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Mark chapter 10, if you've got a Bible, I hope you do, uh, flip over to Mark chapter 10. Our habit is to go straight through the book of the Bible. If you've got notes, break them out. Uh, if you can't think of any good notes to do, just color, all right? Nobody will know the difference. Mark chapter 10, Jesus has turned his gaze towards Jerusalem. He's heading that way. He has left his ministry in the north and he is ministering down in the south. And he's going to run upon a cat today. Here's how I want to address this. I want to describe to you and kind of give you a flavor of how I see the dude that comes up to him. I want to do a character sketch for him, explain him, maybe look at who he would be and kind of like deep dive into that. And then I want to take the character that we are going to map out and I want to put him in the context of the story and hopefully illuminate some things about what's going on here uh, that could drive it home for us. So the first thing I'd say 
uh, about the cat that's in here that was read in the passage is that this is commonly called the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. All three synoptic gospels uh, describe him as rich. Um, Luke describes him as a ruler. Uh, we don't know if that's a ruler of the synagogue or a ruler of a business or in government. And then Matthew describes him as young. Now, let, let's just pause there for a minute and, and hit what this dude clearly is. He is 1,000% the American dream. First off, he's rich. He got that stupid money. The kind of money where he doesn't answer to nobody. Got that Pablo Escobar, I got to bury it out in my yard somewhere, cannabis money. You know what I'm saying? And he doesn't have to go to a job and answer to nobody in order to keep his flow of income. Coming. He is wealthy. And a lot of us would look at that and say, that's exactly who we want to be. Somebody has money. But here's the thing. Some of you are going to have money at retirement and then be too old to enjoy it. So our cat here is not just wealthy. He's young. Now think about it for a second. Isn't this the, the combination that we want? Money at a young age? Let me think about this. Some of our high school kids in here or in that demographic, they are proud of being young. You know why? Because they'll make fun of you for being old. You know what you did to be young? Absolutely nothing. You existed. Right? Or how about this? How much money do you think that we collectively in this church spend on looking young? Work with me here. Do you know how much it costs to color a woman's hair? It is the GDP of Liberia. Face cream, makeup. Brothers, listen, you ain't out of this either. Mustache wax. Listen, this baby got, this baby got to survive in the snow. Right? You got to go to the gym and work out for six pack. That's ambitious. For a smaller keg. Right? The dad bod was invented by men in order to woo women into settling. Right? How many of us are fighting? Listen, we're not trying to look young. We're just trying to look younger. Right? We're just trying to look younger. He's got it all. And he's a ruler. So he calls shots. People ask for his input on things. Maybe he be one of those cats that can make and break elections. They ask his permission. They ask his input. He's on TikTok and he's an influencer and he doesn't even have to take off his clothes. Like this guy is people that other people uh, want his input. When he walks in the room, people recognize and lean over and whisper and talk about him. He's a ruler. He's got clout. He's got political pull. People listen to him. Isn't that the trifecta of the American dream? We want to be rich. We want to be young. And we want to be ruler. We want to, we want to be shot callers. I mean, this cat has it all. And like, if you come to him, wouldn't you say, man, like, sign him up for the Jesus thing? Get him. This is a 
this is a first-round draft pick, Jarrett. You know what I'm saying? Like, can we get rid of Levi and trade Levi out for him? I bet he handles the money better than Judas. Just throwing it out there. He's got none of the baggage of Zacchaeus. He's got none of the background that we know of, of the woman at the well. He seems like the exact kind of people we got to get in the church. Get, he's going to bring all of that influence. I mean, is he not the Tim Tebow of first century Christianity? He's going to make us look good. He seems humbler than Peter. Even this, you see this in the passage, we're going to get to this in a minute. It says that he ran up to Jesus and knelt. He runs. Do you realize that in the passage before, here in chapter 10, look at verse 13. Kids run up to Jesus and the disciples play bouncer. Right? They're like, hey, kids. They're like scooting kids away from coming to Jesus. When homeboy rolls up, you don't see no bouncing. What is it, red carpet? Yeah, 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 you do. You go talk to the Lord. And even look, we'll look in a minute at what is his question. How, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like he's coming to the Lord and he's not even, he, if we want to talk seeker, he's not even consumed completely with this life in this age. He's thinking of the age to come. He's thinking of eternal, he's thinking about what comes next. He got that billionaire mindset. Tell me what I must do in order to inherit eternal life. Jesus, let's get together and brainstorm. Let's get an action plan. Let's strategize. Let's get some steps. Let me know how I can add you to my already stellar resume in order that I might have Jesus plus the awesomeness that my life already is. Doesn't he sound just like us? Jesus, give me a little bit of you. Give me exactly what I need to complete my resume Give me a little bit of Jesus plus all this stuff so that I can be blessed. Don't tell me what I got to give up. Tell me how you can take me to the next level. I mean, there's whole ministries that describe their churches as seeker friendly. They craft the entrance and the coffee and the worship and the sermons and everything that they do in order to accommodate seekers. And I would argue there is not a better seeker in the whole Bible than this cat. And what's ironic about that is he's also the only one in the whole Bible that is described as walking away from Jesus sad. He's your type A, firstborn. Just tell me what I got to do because Jesus, I need to know that I'm good enough. I've kept all the rules. I've done all the right things. I've checked all the boxes. But I still don't feel good enough. Like you, I don't know that God would accept me despite all my rule keeping. See, the, the interesting thing about the passage about kids coming before this is that kids didn't come to Jesus that way. They just ran, found themselves in Jesus' embrace, were blessed and protected. He, he comes to Jesus not in joy. He comes to Jesus differently than a child does. 
He's the perfectionist on a rat race trying to earn grace and he's going to miss out on the goodness of God. It's a hamster wheel spirituality that is exhausting. I can tell you from my own experience and it exhausts other people. And it never knows the love of God in the same way that a child knows. Okay. So I, I think that's, that's the guy. Now let's deposit him into this story. And I, I would maybe set us one more context. One more context for this and then we'll set him. Who do you think throughout the Bible, I mean, different opinions may fall on this, who do you think are the people that are least touched by the gospel? Who do you think are the people that are less changed by the fact that Christ died on the cross for their sins, rose from the grave, and loved them in order to take their filthiness upon Himself and to die and to bury that, that they might have life eternal with Him? Who do you think the least touched by that are? I would argue that throughout the scriptures, the people least touched by that are people who think they're good people. I would argue that it is people who are nice, lost people. Tidy on the outside, missing a piece of the puzzle on the inside. And I would say that I, I, I know some of your stories in here. This is the story of some of the people in this room. And it's a story of how money kept you from Jesus. Uh, chap, uh, chapter 10, verse 17. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, we'll come back to that next week, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now some people might come to this and say, Is Jesus saying that he's not God or not good? And I would argue neither. Jesus is coming at the very premise of his approach and, and attacking the flippant use of the word good. This cat's running up. I love this. He runs up and he kneels before him. And he says, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Isn't only God good? I would say this is a bit tongue in cheek. Because the word here for good in Greek, kathos, is inherent goodness. It's not like, hey, you play basketball and you dribble really good. It's not like you went and you taught really well. Actually, when you... Do something on a verb, it's an adverb, and you should switch it to well, but I mess this up all the time. For kids that don't talk good, right? See, it sounds bad if you put the redneck voice on it. Don't talk well, speak well. I don't know how it is, all right? It's an adverb, but you change good and well. It's not about activity of something that you did well. This word gets down to, at your core, inherently, you are goodness. And Jesus comes to this, and stop. He says, stop right there. You want to talk about goodness? Let's, let's pause. There is only one that is good. And that's God alone. So this kind of begs the question, do you really understand 
the words that you're using. Like in the South, there's a really sweet lady that works at our subway down here. And I don't know if she's from the South, but she does the same thing. They, they call you sweetie and honey. And like even at Brenda's, there's a couple like people from the South in there that will call them sweetie. And it's like some of the crustiest old men go in there and get black coffee. And they, hey, sweetie, you want more coffee? I was like, that dude is not sweet. All right. <laughs> what are you talking about? All right. They're putting some creamer in that coffee. I don't know what they're, they're doing over here. But in the South, we, we, you can have this kind of courteous greeting language, but then they'll backstab you like first chance they get sort of thing. And so they're coming upon Jesus and he's saying, good teacher. And Jesus is like, let, let's, let's work with that word good here. Because if you recognize me as God, which is the claim that Jesus throughout the scriptures, if you recognize me as God, then what I have to say is on a different level than just a teacher or a rabbi. You don't ignore me and get away with it without any peril the way you ignore your first grade teacher. See, if I'm good, then I am God and you got, you've got to orient your life differently. So here's the thing. What happens if you're calling me good if I say something or I call you to do something you don't want to do? Which is exactly what's going to happen. But if I'm good, then you are rejecting what a good God is doing for the sake of saving your soul. So Jesus works with this word good and he, he says, you want, to, you want to talk good? Let's talk good. Stop right there. Do you mean it? Do you recognize me? Let me say it like this. I, I, I use this illustration all the time because I cannot break churches or Christians of doing it. There is such a danger in calling your kids good kids. And listen, I, same reason, none of my kids are preacher kids. My kids are my kids. They are not defined by my job. No, no different than if you're a plumber in here, your kids are defined by, they're not plumber's kids. All right? And it's like, oh, they got good kids. No, we don't. Our kids experience the effects of the fall just like the rest of your kids did. There are no good kids in this room. You hear me? Because the first thing, here's what's going to happen. We start, the only way that you can define your kids or somebody else's kids as good kids is you've got to look horizontally and find some punk kids that are actually worse than your kids. And you know what this does in your kids, though? It builds self-righteousness to where they are always going to define how good they are by how terrible somebody else is. You know, the Bible says that is unbelievably dangerous for your soul. But we train kids from a young age by calling, you know, I got pretty good kids, you know, they're not. No, I got hellions who need great. That's what I got. All right? And they, they are broken and shattered and sinful and they need just as much as their dad does. Amen or oh me. See, He's getting on this dude for throwing around the word good flippantly. And instead of defining it horizontally, he dares him to define it vertically. We don't compare our goodness to others. What we do is we compare our goodness to the law and to the word and to the Christ. And when we do that, we find our need for grace. 
We, need, we find our need for mercy and for love and for forgiveness. And so there's just this dangerous use. Notice here in the text, this is unbelievable. Do you notice the second time that he addresses him as teacher, he doesn't call him good teacher? That's awesome. <laughs> Jesus, like, body checks him on the good word. He's like, all right, all right. Second time around, teacher, I've done all this since my blah, 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 right? All right, look in verse 19. Uh, and you know the commandments, right? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I kept from my youth. Jesus, interestingly, takes him to the law. He, before, oftentimes, kind of like Ray Comfort does this for evangelism, before we take people to the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, we take them to the justice of God and the law of God. And so he ushers him to the commandments. What's curious here is, he takes him to the second tablet or, or, or second side of the commands of God. He leaves out those commands in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments that have to do with loving God. And he takes him to the commands that have to do with loving your neighbor. That's curious. It's also curious, unless you kind of see the defraud as not an expansion on lying, but you see that as covetousness, he clearly leaves out the command not to covet. Not to covet. What, what I love about Jesus is, if, if, we've, if you've been with us through this series, people are constantly trying to trap him. Right? And that brother just can like slide out of some stuff. But if you come to Jesus, he will invite you, I don't want to say trap here, corner. He will bring about a set of circumstances so that you are going to come face to face with your own sin. I mean, Jesus has a way of introducing us to ourselves. In the most gentle and loving way possible. Most gentle and loving way possible. So he takes him and he, he gives him uh, the commandments. And he says, what have you done with those? And he quotes this second tablet. And leaves out this, this thing about coveting. Now on the screen, there's some verses up here. Colossians 3, 5. If you're familiar with the Bible, covetousness seems like it doesn't even belong in the Ten Commandments. But the Bible teaches us that covetousness is idolatry. In Colossians 3, 5, it says, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That is the unbridled passion and hunger for more and more stuff, particularly the stuff that other people have, is in sense rooted in the same heart that abandons God for idols. And so he leaves out this coveting thing. He, so despite the fact that he maybe, you could argue, gives him the easy ones, takes him to the Sunday school answer that he can dunk on, the junior varsity, I think that he is baiting him with the commands he thinks he keeps. The ones that he probably uses the most to compare himself to other people, but has never actually used those commands to come to his need of the grace of God. He's never used those commands to actually glorify God or to love his neighbor. 
And you can see that because when the invitation comes to sell all this stuff and give it to the poor and come love God and follow God, he doesn't. So you could say this maybe about his religion. His religion, we might distill out of this, has always been about him. It's always been about him. Not loving God or... Otherwise, he'd follow Jesus and his possessions he would hold incredibly loosely. Um, Here's what Jesus does. Jesus brilliantly dismantles his self-righteousness. Has God ever done this to you? Um, In Philippians chapter 3, if you got it, God did this to another man who had a lot of the same types of achievements or accolades, or accomplishments that he has. Um, Philippians 3. I like how you you split it up up there, Ty. Threw me off. Um, Look out for dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is uh, Paul writing about uh, the Jews who are hijacking the gospel. For we are the circumcision, Paul speaking himself, who worship by the Spirit of God in the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Exactly where this confidence is. Go to the next one. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. All right, so he's going he's to roll out the letter jacket that he achieved in high school. He's going to take his a one of us and kind of throw it out there. He's going to show the chart of Sunday school attendance and the gold stars up there, baby. All right? Circumcise the eighth day. Unlike you pagans that God knows when they circumcised or didn't. Um, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, I was in the right church, born to the right people, right? Right denomination. As to zeal, persecutor of the church, Ain't nobody more zealous than me. As righteousness under the law, look at that word. Blameless. He says, you could have came, Paul says, you could have came to my former life in Judaism like the rich young ruler and on the outside I was blameless. You could throw accusations at me and they just wouldn't stick. Look at how he now describes that. But whatever gain I had, gain, whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The gospel reinterpreted his life. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Doesn't that sound like a treasure hidden in a field that you sell everything you have to buy that field that you could have that treasure? I count everything lost that I could have Him. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Terrible translation of the New Testament in the word rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. You know why that's a terrible translation? It is too weak. The word, I learned this from my Greek professor who was Australian and a premier Greek scholar for the world, studied at Cambridge. The word rubbish there is weak. Skubalon is the word for rubbish there. 
We don't even use the word. Did an English person use this? Has anybody used the word rubbish this week? Well, did the queen use rubbish? I don't know who uses rubbish. The reason that's a bad word is because in the first century, the word that he used here, we have a great English word for. And it starts with an S. Sometimes it has a B in front when Toby uses it. This is ex- my, my Greek professor in seminary says that is the only good translation of the word rubbish in English. It, it, is, it is a first century strong language. It would have been like taking a shot of alcohol and it burns all the way down. When this word rubbish hit the ears of the people that heard it, it would have it would cringe. This is an incredibly, I mean, it is a, it is a, curse or cuss or strong word in the first century and it's meant to be that because it's meant to highlight all that you think my accomplishments were all of my outward righteousness and blameless and how moral a person and how high of my reputation were it was absolutely garbage to me because it kept me from coming to christ we don't we can't use a strong enough word for rubbish In order that I might gain Christ. Is that how you view your life before Jesus? Your morality before outside of Jesus? Or are you still trying to build a reputation? It was rubbish to Paul. What he... Paul came to understand that it was his religion, his misuse of the Bible, his status, his reputation, and what he had convinced himself he had earned that was blocking him from coming to Jesus and eternal life. You got to let go of that person that Satan is trying to convince you of in your mind that you're a good person. You got to let go of it. Because here's the thing. Jesus is going to come into the next verse. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Verse 21. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. I want to come back to that. And said to him, You lack one thing. You lack. You lack. It is your... Tell me I'm wrong, Christians. For those that are believers, filled with the Holy Spirit in the room, tell me I'm wrong here. It is your lack that makes you aware of your need for Jesus. It's when we fall short of the glory of God that we know how desperately we need Him. That was me this week. Was it you? Like when I just blew it, or I was stagnant, or I was frustrated, or I walked in my flesh this week. It's in those moments there that I was completely aware of my need for Jesus. But you found me going throughout this week thinking that I was killing it and I was completely unconscious to my need for the Holy Spirit. It's your lack that makes you aware of need, Jesus. There was this famous preacher um, in in, um, early American history and he was traveling around and preaching the gospel kind of all over. It was kind of a precursor to a great revival that broke out across the country. 
And a lot of preachers, uh, when they traveled and spoke itinerantly, will stay in homes. I mean, there wasn't like the hotel system like there is today. I'm actually speaking at an event in a couple weeks, and I'm doing the same thing. I like to stay in homes uh, when I go. I'm doing an event out of state, and I'm going to stay with some people. And I appreciate that. It's just get more time in community and um, practice. Ho- they get to practice hospitality, and it's a connection. So this, he comes to town, and the minister said, we got this family. They, they're not believers, but, but they're like good people, and they wanted to host you. So they have the preacher into their home. He stays there a couple days um, in the winter, and he notices the family are moral. Like, they're just, they're just kind of like nice people. And their kids, he notes, are obedient. Which, you know, like, kind of stands out. And they, they just, their home seems kind of put together. And he wanted to share the gospel with them, but he didn't exactly know. Like, he's like, these people look like they, they like somebody's walking around with nothing because these people got everything. You know what I'm saying? And so he, he goes in and he reads this passage. It's actually the same passage. And he, he sees the window is kind of foggy. And he writes the quote to the rich young ruler. One thing you lack. And then the Bible reference. That's all he does. He doesn't share with them. He didn't exactly know what to do. But he just writes on a steamy window. One thing you lack. And the Bible reference to the rich young ruler. And he leaves, and, and this family finds, like one of their kids find it. And they say, what is that? And they, so they have a Bible, they kind of go to it, and they read it. And God, using his word, cuts them to the heart. That they're, see, it was their, it, it's not all that they have, it's, it's what they don't have. That led them to their realization of how much they need God in their life. One thing you lack. Now, I I love this because look at this passage. One interesting detail that Mark includes that Matthew and Luke don't is that it says that Jesus looked at the cat and it says that he loved him. Right? Isn't that what your Bible says? Like Jesus looks at him, all that this hot mess is, and loved him. He's running. He's kneeling. He's courteous. But kind of unthoughtful uses words. He's trying his best in the wrong direction. He's asking kind of the right question. But also completely the wrong question. Like what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean he's on the eternal life thing. He just got the wrong angle on what he's got to do. He's, He's missing something. He's a rule keeper. He's a high achiever. He's unfulfilled. He's a hot mess spiritually, and he comes to Jesus. I love that about him. I love that he comes to Jesus in the midst of his mess. Because let's be honest about some of us. We're not half as bold as that. We start screwing up in life, and we run away from Jesus like Adam and Eve in the garden covering ourselves with fig leaves. The fact of the matter is, I love his boldness to say, listen, I don't know what's messed up in me, Jesus, but I'm going to come to you with it. Jesus sees all the good, all the bad, all of that stuff. He comes in and looks at him and loves him. And I, I think that all the time I feel like I've got to clean my life up first before I come to God. And, and the Bible is, just, that, that's just not the way it is. Jesus, 
like takes him as he is and is like, I just, like, I got a love for where you're at. And like, come on, let's go further. He loves him. I would argue this love is like the love of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, we like to stop there. But the truth of the matter is, the verse continues. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, the world is condemned already. But it says that they did not believe because men loved darkness rather than life. They love darkness rather than light. He loves him and like he loves the whole world, but the world's not going to receive him because of their love for darkness and idolatry and covetousness. The world is condemned already because of possession-loving unbelief. Here's the tragedy. Here's the tragedy. Looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. 22, disheartened, or you might say gloomy, or sorrowful. His face fell, disappointed by the saying. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Sorrowful. That's the tragedy. Here's, the, here's where it is. After you've looked the love of God in the face of Jesus, where do you go from there? After you've looked at love in the face of Jesus, like, what are you going to one-up that with? You're going to go, you're walking away to a big screen TV? To a pickup truck? To your big empty house? going to cave in one day? You're going to go to your property, to your metal coins, to your bitcoins, all right? Like, what, where do you, in the, you encountered love, and you're going to put the love of God in the rearview mirror of your life, and where do you expect to go but down? What's next for you? What's the thing that you can buy that's going to going to replace that love, that affirmation, that fulfillment, that joy. says he walked away sad. I would argue this, and in one way, the rich young ruler is material, materially wealthy. But in the way that is most important, he's bankrupt. He's bankrupt. He's wealthy in one sense, and he's in destitute poverty in another. Says that he walked away sad. Here's how I would put this last story and we're done. Um, so, a couple of you know, a few of you make fun of it. Uh, I, I'm Chickasaw, which I'm a citizen of a Chickasaw nation and Native American. So we, are, we own one of the largest casinos in the world between Oklahoma City and Dallas. And... Uh, my kids are all Chickasaws and registered Chickasaws. It feels weird to say registered because it feels like they're puppies or something. We're not, it's not like we're citizens of a tribe. But I grew up always knowing that our tribe owned these huge casinos and gambling. And 
at some point I had to put together how are we making all of this money at the casinos? Like, how does our tribe make money off of people going in there and gambling? And here's the conclusion that many people have not reached yet. People go in there and lose everything. All right? They walk in there. And um, you will find people that will take, retired people that will take their life savings into a casino and literally $60,000 in a weekend has is, is happened. Okay? People can't even afford to feed themselves and walk out. It's like terrible. So I just, and this isn't even just a Baptist thing. Now, if there's like, I know there's like two of you old school Baptists in here that understand like gambling, they were dancing back in the day. It's like one of the things we don't do, except for 401k retirement. That's another conversation. All right. Okay. And, and so I just got to this place where I, I, I don't gamble unless it's a sure thing. And there are people in my college ministry that understand I've made like six bets in all of my ministry, but I had to know that they were like sure bets. And because of this, like, I've had people have to cut their hair a certain way, right? You know, maybe have to get, uh, oh, I shouldn't even tell that one. And then, um, you know, I have, I want you to know this. I have a kid somewhere in the United States that's named after me because Chickasaw and at gambling, all right? And by the way, Colby's a great name. It, like, can go, hamstress. We got some babies coming, so I just got to figure out, um, so I, I just gamble. And one of the things about gambling, I don't know if you, you've done it, I don't want to get caught in a scenario. I don't want to get caught in a scenario where I have something of worth on the line and I have to pay it up. And then when I win, I have more stuff. And it doesn't it feel like when you win, if you play roulette or you, poker's a different thing, but you play, you win. Say I put $20 in, and I win, and now I have $40, it's like, oh, well, I didn't even earn that $40. Might as well. It's so easy to throw it back in, isn't it? So you put it back in, $40, now you got $80. Then all of a sudden, if, you're, if, you're, if you like grew up poor like me, you're like, $80? Like our casino ran a thing where if you came in, they would give you a free $20, I think I went in and like got the $20, played a quarter machine, walked out with $19.75. That's what's happening in my mind, okay? Like, I don't play that. I don't, I don't want to get caught in the situation where I feel like, oh my, I'm risking too much because you keep going $120, $1,000. Some of you guys are gamblers. I know you're in here, all right? And you get into this $2,000 thing and then you... Here's what happens. It's no longer you competing against anybody else or even the statistics or the math. It's you competing against you, right? And I just don't want to be in that position where I'm trying to justify in my mind based on greed. For one of the things about gambling that's negative is that it's using greed as entertainment. Uh, which is why in my house we do like burpees. Because ain't nobody entertained by burpees, all right? Like you lose, you got to do 10 burpees. But you get into this thing where $1,000, $2,000, and then you, you start to sweat, and it becomes real. You look at the money. I think some of the best poker players I've seen on like E3 are the guys that don't even think of it as money. They just think of it as paper. Because when you start to look at you know, like poker games on ESPN3, they put the stack of money in front of them. It's like this pile of a million dollars. And like they look at their cards and they look at the money. They look at their cards and they look at the money and it causes them to react in a certain way. 
I just don't want to be put in a situation where I'm justifying a bad decision. Like, in general, like, why I kind of, like, retreat from gambles that are not sure bets and those kind of things. I'm kind of risk-adverse in that sense. Isn't what our dude is doing is gambling with Jesus? Isn't what he is doing is gambling with Jesus? Jesus says, I want you to go all in. And it's like, oh, I was trying to hedge my bet. Right? I want Jesus to give you part of my life, but not all of my life. I ain't trying to give it all. We have weird language about this, don't we? It's like, I have my, you know, I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to work out. That's my, my, my physical life. I got my work life. Anybody got a work life? You got a home life? And then some of us are real weird. Oh, my spiritual life isn't doing so well. It's like, dude, are you a cat? How many lives do you have? Right? You don't have a gym life, a home life, a work life, or a spirit. You have your life. It is all your spiritual life. But we're like the kid who has peas and mashed potatoes on the plate. We don't want them to touch. We try to talk about work, home, life balance. God says, that's all your life. He says, I'm not asking you to give me part of your life. I'm saying, die, take up your cross and follow me. Surrender all of your life. And the brother just can't, he cannot push the chips across the table. He can't go, listen to the language, he can't go all in. Why? He's got too much in his mind, to lose. And what he has to gain doesn't seem valuable enough. The goodness of God, a relationship with a creator that loves him, eternal life. Do you think that 10,000 years from now, how much money that guy had in an account, how many numbers he had in an account somewhere, do you think that that really mattered? How about this? We don't even know of the people that worked for him or that he had influence on. Nobody even knows the names of the people that held him in high regard. So how important is your reputation 10,000 years from now? It only matters to really the reputation you have with one person, and that's God. Here's the problem with gambling with Jesus. He can't go all in. And so he puts the love of God in the rearview mirror, and he walks away sad. Let me ask you the question here. Because I'm going to talk about this next week. But there is not a more wealthy people on the planet than this room right here. Most of the earth lives on $2 a day. We are the wealthy of the wealthy. Right? And you don't even live in Arkansas. You live in Colorado. Go try to buy a piece of property right now. And you'll understand how wealthy you are. And the people around here. Are you able to go all in on Jesus? Or are you hedging your bet and just giving him pieces of your life? Are you going to walk out of this room sad? And disappointed? You don't have to. You don't have to. I don't know what your pet 
idols are or what your personal preference of sin is, but you can do business right there in your seat with God and surrender that idol of lust. You could surrender, you could surrender that covetousness. You could surrender that idolatry. You can surrender right in the seat where you're at right now and inherit and believe in Christ and inherit eternal life. Right in the seat where you're at. Nobody has to walk out of here sad. Do you hear me? Nobody. The cross is too good at picking up all of our junk and forgiving us of it and giving us life eternal with Christ in such a way that it becomes treasure to us and everything that we had before becomes rubbish. Let me pray for you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, Maybe the Holy Spirit, I'm believing this, the Holy Spirit has revealed to some of you idols that if you don't let go of them, when push comes to shove, one day will cause you to walk away from Jesus so that you can have them. They're not all bad things. It could be family, it could be our job. It could be our career. If the Holy Spirit is telling you to surrender something, I want you to take time right now with the Lord, just you and Him. Would you lay them at the cross? If you're here and you lack, and you're unfulfilled, We believe in this real old school thing called repentance. It's not just about turning away from the idols, but it's turning back to Christ. Would you turn to Him and look full in His wonderful face and see a love for you? If you're here, you don't even have to look up and you want me to pray for you. I'm about to pray in just a moment. Just raise your hand. I'd love to pray for you. I see the hand. see the hand. You're uniquely dealing with something. I see your hand. I see the hand. I see your hand. I see you. For those that have raised their hand and said, that's me, I just, I need to turn. I'm going to intercede for you now. I pray for those other Christians in the house that you'd stand in agreement. For those that are uniquely saying, I need to turn to Christ and find my true fulfillment. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, come now with your kingship and rescue us from our trinkets and our worldliness and our self-righteousness. And deliver us like children into the arms of Jesus. 
God, by faith we come to you, knowing the cross has forgiven our sin, that blocks access into your presence, that in the cross of Jesus and in the resurrection we have new life inherited, not earned, because of grace. And so, God, we want to have that life and life abundantly. And so, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who boldly raise their hand that, God, you would come and meet them and fill them and assure them. And, God, weed out whatever's in their heart that's sapping life out of their soul. And, God, plant yourself deep into their hearts. God, we want to walk out of this room with joy. And so, Holy Spirit, come and convict any here who are arm wrestling with their idols, who might dare to walk out of here sad, not knowing Jesus. Come be our treasure and our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Let's stand together and sing, would you?